people are realizing colonialism isn't a concept. It's a material experience. And so people are waking up to that and seeing from that perspective, hang on, let me just trace the roots here. I'm not just focused on the people who are resisting. I can also flip this and see that actually colonialism is also a felt experience, right? Not just decolonialism. It's not just about the resistance fighters. Hang on a minute. Let me just turn that around. Ah, now I see the root. Now I see where this traces back to, which is why you're seeing so much large-scale large uh, uh, resistance in Europe, in the UK, in the US. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Lisa Minerva Lux. Lux is a poet, playwright, essayist and political activist of British and Syrian heritage. Their work has been broadcast on Channel 4, BBC and TEDx. And between writing, Lux guest lectures on revolutionary politics and queer theory. This is my second time interviewing Lux. The first was right at the beginning of this podcast and I will put links to it in the show notes. I contacted them to record an emergency episode about the violence and resistance in Palestine. And this is truly an extraordinary episode. We discuss language, liberation, resistance, sabotage, violence, humanization, dehumanization. We discuss the symbols and linguistics of war, of resistance, of humanity, of dignity. We discuss the geopolitical context of this violence, the reality of empire, how the illusion of progress is being shattered in the face of unequivocal support for bloodthirsty violence, the desecration of homes, and the dismissal of human rights. We talk about this being a moment that is uniting people across the world, and how everyone can get involved. From direct action, to striking, to comporting yourself with dignity, and finding a way to support every other human being's right to a dignified life. This is the first emergency episode on Palestine that I will be releasing over the course of the weeks or months. I believe that first of all, the first thing that we can do is bear witness, and that second of all, the thing that we are witnessing is the culmination of colonial and imperial policies. It is a gut-wrenching thing to see violence, international violence, state violence, played out real-time with full support from quote-unquote democratic regimes. Understanding what is happening in Palestine leads us to understanding more of what happens in our own lives as well at the hands of those same regimes. Whilst that is deeply important considering the urgency of the climate crisis that we are in, another reason I'm doing these emergency episodes is because the ecosystem of Planet Critical was built with people platforming one another and against the deluge of PR, of propaganda, of two-dimensional analyses, Planet Critical will be a platform for the voices of those who are silenced, those who dare say something different, those who damn well know what they're talking about, quite frankly. These emergency episodes will come out every Sunday. 
they'll be writing alongside them. I've already had uh, subscribers drop out since the last episode, which was simply with a researcher about disinformation in the Middle East. And I've had personal emails, some fairly vitriolic, since criticizing the Israeli state, the Zionist regime. To anybody listening who feels outraged or upset at these episodes, please know that I am genuinely curious as to why you feel that way. That this is a space of learning and deconstructing and collaborating. If you can also find it in your heart to be curious, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly. But first of all, I implore you, please just listen. Listen to some other voices. Listen to those who have embodied experience of this level of violence. Listen to those who care about constructing a better world. Listen to those whose hearts are breaking along with yours. And remember, what could unite us are our commonalities rather than our differences. I'm trying to remind people, especially those who are using pinkwashing as a way to pit you against Hamas and Palestinian resistance fighters when you're a queer person, is to say you think that they wouldn't, and obviously they use the word behead because they love uh, Islamophobic tropes, you think they wouldn't uh, behead you. I'm like, the fight for a free Palestine is a frontier where all liberation movements must meet, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter actually to say these kind of nuanced things to try and turn, to somehow try and make me believe that I'm in the wrong fight because Israel have managed to, to cleverly put out a PR machine that makes us believe that it's democratic and everybody's equal there. Of course they are not. Hence why we're in this situation. Why I believe that Palestine and the fight for liberation there is a frontier where all all of our movements meet is because it is the most clearly defined frontier against colonialism right now, against mm. white supremacy. You can't speak about climate uh, injustice without talking about white supremacy. You can't speak uh, about queer liberation without talking about white supremacy and colonialism. You know, these things all feed into the same, or all come from, let's say, the same root, the same rhetoric, the same uh, dialogue that was set up by white supremacists uh, and the emergence of that hand-in-hand with capitalism since the 1600s. That's why there are so many oppressed groups like now that look the way they are, feel the way that they are, because of those same mechanisms of oppression. And that is just the most potent, and I don't say symbolic uh, in terms of it being an empty symbol or being so much more than that, but you can look at this liberation movement as a symbolic every other liberation movement that's happening and the way in which you will be persecuted. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying lightly or with flippancy uh, uh Let's say I'm not drawing parallels flippantly here. I certainly hope that's not how it comes across, but look at what's happening with the trans uh, rights movement in the UK. You're perverts, you're this, you're that. Because if you're perverts and you're less than human, then no, you don't deserve medical aid. No, you don't deserve uh, uh, um, uh, to have supporters, et cetera, et cetera. You see the exact same rhetoric with Palestinians, you're human animals. You guys don't deserve to live, you know? Like we can't separate these these issues. 
You could start with your beginning if you want. Sorry, I know that you start in a certain way. I just felt that perhaps we should start. No, please, please do not apologize. Mm-hmm. Please do not apologize. I think, no, I'd like to keep going. Mm-hmm. I think, as I was saying just before we pressed record as well, like this being symbolic for every other liberation movement, this being the intersection, the nexus, the like mother of all relationships between oppressed groups. Yeah. It's so important to be understood like that because of the economic warfare that is happening all over the world. Like there is a them and an us. And without going into the semantics of like who in which group is like evil or good or these value judgments, like just looking at it as people are propelled by a system Mm -hmm. and some people do their best to propel that system further. Um, It is so important that the liberation, the right of a people to live in freedom and in dignity that this be one, because if it isn't, I mean, the precedent, it's been going on for hundreds of years, as you say, but the precedent of of those people losing their freedom and their dignity forever, losing their homes forever on the world stage where it's being recorded and the international community gets away with it, the Western community, the precedent that that sets for every other struggle, it's terrifying. There's two things that I want to to say to that actually my brain is really fried at the moment so I'm just going to be making notes so that I don't forget things so first to just speak to what you said about dignity one thing that we're seeing a lot of is images of people in rubble and they're being shared quite widely I'm quite conscious not to share images no matter how much they affect me, such as the video we saw after the Al-Ahli hospital bombing of the father who'd only managed to recover parts of his son's body. Yeah. And he held them in a plastic carrier bag. And his face just in complete stillness. There was nothing left to feel. And this, this was impossible to remove from my mind's eye um, and forever forever will be. However, the reason I don't reshare or resist to reshare such images as that is because of this notion of dignity. And also, it's the truth that's happening. And when Palestinian people inside Gaza right now are asking for us to share what they're saying, this means we must listen to We must listen to this. However, there is, there is no book to that. Their, their, their request is their request. And that is why I, I insist that we keep sharing. And there's no use for people who believe, I'm just not being vocal online. It doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. Well, that's, that's fine it, 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 in a general sense. But in this specific context, there is no unbiased media happening. And so the people of Gaza are reporting themselves to you online and specifically saying the one thing you can do is just share what we're saying. So there's this. Now, my resistance to resharing a lot of the videos that are coming out of the rubble is because I know that I have been places in England where when people learn that I am Arab, I live in Beirut much of the time. I've had one person once ask me, Really, I thought it was all just craters. I didn't 
know that oh my can submit that. Yeah, yeah, really. And so I know that there are people not that far removed from us, from you and I and our circles, who genuinely believe that Arabs simply live in landscapes of destruction. And that that's where we belong. We crawl through the dust, our men being savages and our women weeping. And that's what we do, right? And changing people's perception to understand if you cannot imagine your neighborhood turned to rubble and dust, then you best believe it's equally not normal for anybody in the world to experience that. It is not normal to see your house, your home, your neighborhood, your hospitals, your schools in rubble. None of us anywhere have made a habit out of that experience. That's not business as usual for anyone, no matter how many times that might happen to yourself or your ancestors. It never becomes not, you know? should never. The second part of what you're saying about this being connected to so many different struggles is a friend of mine who is Syrian, lives in Beirut, and very much uh, invested and involved in, in Palestinian resistance, said to me something really empowering the night that I was leaving Beirut. He said, what we're seeing all over the world is people protesting en masse and their governments are trying to repress them. Let's use, for example, Egypt. We just saw Egypt in protest again. We just saw Egyptians back down at Tahrir Square. Remember the, do we remember the last time we saw this? This was a, lot, this was a while ago. This was over 10 years ago that we saw, that we saw this. In Egypt, nobody has dared to speak up. No one has dared protests since Sisi came into power, you know? And yet we see them there completely defying the code of conduct that they have felt they've had to follow since uh, uh, the, the Arab Spring. We're seeing the same thing happen in Europe. People are rejecting the repression being served to them by their... Uh, judiciary systems. He told me, and this would have to be fact-checked, fact check, I haven't seen this, that there are some European states who are having to roll back the attempts at legislation they were trying to urgently push through that condemned pro-Palestinian protests because they're realising if they create that piece of legislation, they can't do anything about it because you can't arrest thousands of people at once. There just isn't room in jail or courts. They don't have the resources, right? So oh, fascinating. Fascinating. So what you're seeing is all over the world, people realizing, hang on a minute, are we more powerful than our governments? And he said, thank you to the Palestinians for giving us the opportunity to experience that. And... This is something that we must keep transplanting, this, this feeling that we're having, this empowered feeling of, of absolutely not backing down or being fearful in the face of repression when it comes to so many causes that are linked with the Palestinian cause 
It is such a visual representation of white supremacy and colonialism. And it is also being fought with, how do I put this? Like the most gruesome and ugly of tools. Um, I suppose when, when we think of a lot of colonialism now, we think of like economic colonialism, which is just as devastating to communities, but it's like slightly more subtle, isn't it? Um, and it's about like economic bondage and all these kinds of things. Like what, what the state of Israel is doing to Palestine is, comes from a different century. And it reveals the the wrath upon which empire was built, um, which is why, yeah, I've, I completely understand and support your statement that the liberation of Palestine is the sort of first struggle. One one hundred percent, and I think that's why we, we first we first uh, messaged on the morning of the global strike, and I believe that because of what you said is why it's important for people to be striking, and now. I'll come back round to this notion of, of sabotage as a basic weapon mm. of insurgent mm -hmm. groups, but I'll start that off by just saying that I often talk about the formation and we have to see ourselves consistently in formation. What you hear a lot of and I'm sure that you will, um, as much as I do, is people saying, I don't know what I can be doing. And because they see big, bold resistance at such as the smashing up of Israeli arms factories by the likes of Palestine Action, and they think, well, I cannot do that. So therefore, Perhaps there's nothing I can do. Whereas my point is that wherever you are in this architecture of social structure, you will find your role. So when we talk about that in terms of, for example, direct action groups, I'll just go into the microscopic and then we can zoom it out. In the microscopic, yes, you have those who are on the front, front line who will take the direct action which may look like uh, the spray painting of the BBC after its bias headlines, um, to recognize it as a target that is implicit, uh, that is complicit with uh, the continued siege on Gaza now. But you also need the people who will pick up those frontliners from the police station, make sure they have a lift home, they have something decent to eat and they can uh, have someone to reflect with. They can get a blanket and some water and a cigarette, whatever it is they need. Yeah. And then you have the people who are more learned in the judicial system and legal jargon who can work with those actionists to ensure that the trial that they face, if they do, is itself a site of resistance. So there is, I believe, no worth in seeing going to trial as a consequence of resistance because it's part of a, the resistance itself. It's a space to use Freedom of Information Act to expose companies who are trying to accuse you and to accuse them back. It's a place to put the judicial system in a moral dilemma, right? So you have all of these roles when you look at the 
sustainable long-term goals as the overthrow of colonial power. There are so many roles within that formation. It wouldn't work if everybody was on the front line. It wouldn't work if everybody was part of the armed resistance or if everybody was uh, 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 simply holding film screenings. Both those things are important at once. And so that's how I zoom it out. If you're in working in a, in a corporation, if you're, even if you're not, even if you're working as a freelancer, the use of, of strike has historically been one of the tools of sabotage. And striking allows for the capitalist mechanism because you can't, you know, since, since England entered the game, at least, uh, you can't talk about colonialism without capitalism. And so in order to put a spanner in the cogs of the machine is to slow it down. I've canceled all of my work uh, now. I, I, I spoke to my agent. I said, you need to tell every, everyone who's tried to commission me everything that I've committed to that I'm not doing it right now. Unless, unless they can turn up for Palestine and I'll do something with them in tandem with that. There's no use in me doing anything else. I don't want to, and it's not right to. And so I can do it as somebody who is entirely self-employed and who works for themselves. If you work inside a corporation or you work inside a, a, a bigger uh, uh, machinery quite directly, then striking or slowing down your, uh, your efficiency is a really useful way of, of, of sabotaging uh, the machinery that's at play here. And hopefully we'll do, there'll be more global strikes and more and more people will join and more, even more organizations will close down for the day. Now I want to talk about sabotage a little bit more, if I, unless you want to interject. Please. Yeah. Let's look at South African apartheid. People still have a common collective gap in, in memory where they continue to believe that Nelson Mandela was always nonviolent. He always believed in nonviolence. He didn't. He did, he did for a while. He did for a while until he realized it wasn't going to get anywhere. And then he went to Algeria to train in guerrilla warfare and started to employ tactics of sabotage because it was the only way to actually disrupt the colonial power that was at play. And he knew that. This is a man who simultaneously was president of South Africa while remaining on the terrorist uh, uh, list in the U.S., despite the U.S. by that point having moved towards sanctions on, on South Africa, they still kept him on a list of global terrorists, right? Now, he believed in sabotage, and it was, of course, sabotage that got him imprisoned for all those years. I'm part of Palestine Action, which is a direct action network in the UK, some of the work that I do includes arrestee support, prison support, 
And what direct action's key goal is, is sabotage, economic sabotage. So coming back to striking, if an organization won't strike, what groups like Palestine Action will do is force a strike. We'll shut down that company, that Israeli arms factory, Elbit Systems, that is functioning out of the UK and exporting from the UK. We'll shut it down for a day, two days more, six days more, and continuously do that. It's economic sabotage. Firstly, because it costs 30 to 50,000 pounds in loss of profit every day in which one of these factories is closed. Secondly, there's a need to hire more security. So, so they continue having to lose money. Not to mention the restoration of buildings and increased uh, CCTV, etc., etc. The cost of going to trial. And then another side of the economic sabotage there is that Elbit Systems had a contract with Ministry of Defence in the UK and a £280 million contract last year was dropped with Elbit Systems. That's a huge sum of money. Why was it dropped? Because actionists kept entering the factories. And every time an actionist enters the factory, Elbit Systems has to report to MOD that there has been a breach of security. And eventually, at some point, the Ministry of Defence have to turn around and say, it's no longer sustainable for us to keep working with you when you keep having to process a breach of security. It's not safe for us. Wow. So we have to cut ties. And there goes a huge multi-million pound contract. Now, we see, so we've seen historically sabotage work as a tool of insurgents that's, that's more often than not been associated with anti-colonial movements. And so to believe that that isn't useful right now is to believe in the passivity that most anti-colonial leaders gave up on at some point. You know, you can't remain passive. Whether it is striking, whether it is sitting down, whether it is taking five hours for you to do a five-minute task for your boss because that is your resistance or whether it's blocking the entryway to businesses so that you force a fight. This is so interesting because this is exactly kind of the, uh, this is a big part of the conversation that's happening in the climate movement right now. Um, I think especially sparked by Andreas Malm's book, um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And him asking the question, like, why, why is this not happening? If this is an ex existential threat, and if this has also been the cornerstone of every anti-colonial struggle, a radical flank. And I think he referenced ANC, who actually part of their sabotage was fossil fuel um, uh, infrastructure, pipelines, blowing up pipelines, because empires can't run without fossil fuels. Empires will never run on renewable energy, people. Mm -hmm. which is another reason why they're very, very, very slow to transition. Mm -hmm. You cannot have a military on renewable energy. That military is only ever going to be fossil fueled. That's why the United States is terrified of the, the dawn of the new age. Um, and there's this big kind of like back and forth around, you know, oh, but can, can you create a good world using, you know, can you create a nonviolent world if it comes from violence? And a big part of the work, it seems, is like parsing all of these terms. You know, like, is sabotage violent? Like, is it? I don't know. Is, well, I, I know what I think. 
you know, is impacting a business um, or a, a pipeline or a piece of infrastructure, can I commit violence against a non-living thing? I don't think that I can, mm. actually. I don't think sabotage is fundamentally violent. Mm -hmm. Especially if that thing is like feeding into the economy of death, but that's another like sort of stone. Um, but yes, it is. Can you can't? Mm -hmm. And I think it's been a very clever. Do you know? Do you know what? I was talking to somebody um, at the march on Saturday, and they're an amazing investigative journalist, do a lot of security stuff. And he was like, "Oh, obviously, like the climate movement has been infiltrated." Like, like they, all movements are infiltrated. And I was like, is that why this nonviolence thing is such a big part of it? Because it, it essentially hobbles itself. It hobbles its own agenda. Yes. Yeah. Even this framing of like sabotage is violent. No, it's not. Give over. I'm not. Mm. It's not violent. Like, mm. sorry, I will shut up now. No, um, it's not. <laughs> I, I also just, just think that, that the conversation around violence we become so distracted from the goal of liberation. Mm. Like in, in the PFLP, the, well, the strategy for the, for the liberation of Palestine, written by the PFLP, so Palestinian Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, they wrote in their founding document, the only language that the enemy understands is the language of revolutionary violence. You know, I, I, I said in, in, in some arguments that I had to face, with Zionists following October the 7th. So if I was locked in a cage or there was a person locked in a cage or a people locked in a cage, which is exactly what the situation was and is, and you know that the only way to break those bars of that cage is to use metal cutters. No matter how many times you whisper in ask the bars to move of the, and separate to let you out, they won't. And at some point, you have to pick up the tool that will break those bars or you are choosing to surrender. And now there's a concept uh, that came out of Palestinian prisoner uh, movements and quite specifically is a rhetoric in feminist praxis and feminists who were imprisoned, uh, as we know, there's 20% of Palestinian people uh, get imprisoned and tortured and interrogated. And I think that's actually quite a modest statistic, to be honest with you. But that's, mm. that's an accepted one, so I'll say that, so as not to be accused of an inflated thing. Now, this practice of, is called samud. Samud in Arabic means steadfastness. So it's in the face of violence, in the face of interrogation, in the face of torture, to not give up any of the secrets of the movement, any uh, thing that is part of your movement's protection for itself and to stay steadfast in that, which is also what I try and encourage in a much safer repertoire, protesters or resistance groups in the UK to think with when they're facing trial. Never 
never stand up and plead guilty. You're not guilty. What are you guilty of, my love? What are you guilty of? Oh, you put some paint on a building? That's arson and crafts compared to what the Israelis are doing in <laughs> Palestine. Are you mad? Are you kidding? You're not guilty of anything, my love. Like, keep uh, with your steadfastness. Keep with your integrity. And if you lose sight of that, then root yourself back in the reality. Put your problems within their size, you know, in the, in the wider context. I think we're going to have to have a complicated conversation around violence, given what we're talking about, because yeah. some people listening to this are going to say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. does that mean you're condoning that we are, both of us are condoning the violence of Hamas? Which, yeah. And there was, there is violence that's undeniable. Um, so how do we square like the spectrum of revolutionary violence, I suppose? Um, how do we, how do we find a language to talk about it that isn't binary and oppositional as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that goes beyond, well, X did something, so Y did something, and yet, and all of this. Like, how do we, and even, even when so much violence happens in such a short period of time and there is so much grief and so much suffering and so much rage, and all of that is correct, rage, suffering, grief, how do we peel back the big picture the context that belies all of this I mean it's such a huge task I'll be very frank which is firstly Palestinians have been lobbying have been speaking at UN summits have been educating the world have been attempting a uh, 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 peace and reconciliation, such as with the Oslo Accords, for so long. And it's gotten them murdered again and again and again. It's gotten them ethnically cleansed, which is a removing dignity. What do you have left if you never existed? You don't even have a name. The one thing that we all leave behind is a name. And once that's removed, that's, that is horrific violence. That, that goes beyond mortal violence. So, first of all, what we see is the emergence of Hamas. Now, I I think that most people fail to understand that Hamas is an elected governing party. They're not ISIS. They're not popping up a a group uh, uh, that goes around uh, uh, a number of countries and beheads children. Uh, as the as the West uh, love to talk about, ISIS were horrific, horrific, beyond words, and I don't even want to talk about them because it puts chills down my spine. What we must remember is that Hamas are elected government; they are a party. Yeah. So when people say they're hiding behind hospitals and schools, no, they have hospitals and schools because they're a governmental party with infrastructure. So they just are hospitals and schools in Gaza. Okay, so this is one thing that I think we need to have. If we're going to have a conversation around the nuance of violence, we need to have a conversation around the nuance of Hamas, you know? Otherwise, we are just trying to dampen out the urge for, for armed resistance. Now, we want to argue, is armed resistance okay? People who look back at the horrors of South African apartheid, American apartheid, we always see that there had to be, at some point, as the PFLP wrote, 
a language that speaks to the colonizer's violence. And that the only thing is violence, is revolutionary violence. I'm not saying here that I believe that there should be uh, deaths and, 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 uh, and, and bombings. Yani the opposite. I wish that there didn't have to be. I wish that it wasn't at that point. I really, really do. But if you have to break out of your cage one way or another, unfortunately, it's going to come down to that. It's going to. That's, that's humanity. Unless people surrender and, and they cannot keep surrendering because at what point will people care about Palestinian people when they're extinct? Like the only time when we care about animals is when they become extinct. Not the only time we care about animals, but the only time you care about a rhino or something that's far removed from your experience is once they nearly become extinct. So we're going to wait until everyone's like, let's adopt a Palestinian and hug a tree. Are we waiting for that before you put any dignity on these people's heads? Do they have to be uh, the perfect uh, uh, civilian in order to be worthy of resisting? They have, according to the UN conventions, the right to reclaim their land. They have that right. It is written in international law. Okay? Now, let's look, if we're going to talk about the nuance of Hamas, let's talk about how much Israel need Hamas. Okay? Right? There's a lot of, of, of text. There's a lot of arguments that say Israel created Hamas. I'm not going to go into that because I don't know. I don't know black from white in that. And I think that sometimes this is a bit of a, I think this is a stretch, uh, to be honest with you. But I'm going to just say that is an argument. That is a, a, an argument that's out there. Now, to temper that, what I do see and what I do observe is October the 7th, Hamas took hostages in the same way that Israel take hostages every day, every single day. Hamas took hostages. Why did they take hostages? So that they could bargain, that they could negotiate for aid. What we have seen come out in the media, if you don't only watch CNN, if you watch a wider, broader spectrum of media, is that Hamas were not torturing people when they were taking them hostage. There was a doctor on site. There was a play part. There were things that ensured that those people weren't dying on their plot. That's not to say that Hamas have not killed people. Yes, they have. I'm not saying that they haven't. And I'm not saying that that isn't something that we massively want to be avoiding here, right? But let's look at Friday, last Friday, for example. We're now on Wednesday, 25th of October. Let's think about last Friday. When Hamas offered hostages back to Israel, they said, we want to release some of your hostages. And Israel said no, and they rejected it. Now, it is Israeli, uh, 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 you know, let's say apartheid state civilians themselves who are condemning that their government is showing no care, no, no urgency to, to be there for their hostages, to recollect their hostages. They are even bombing areas that they know their hostages are. They're showing no care for their own civilians. Why is that? Because as soon as they get their hostages back, they have no excuse any longer to keep invading Gaza. They have no excuse. They have shown us now, they have shown their own citizens, which is why you're now seeing resistance within the apartheid state, their own government, saying, what are you guys doing? Why are you putting the land grab over the importance of reclaiming your citizens? 
you know? So it is a very fair observation for us to have the conversation that Israel needs a militant resistance group coming out of Gaza so they can excuse an extreme violence that is way bigger than what Hamas even has the resources to do. Keep in mind, Palestinians don't have a military. They don't have an air force, you know? They don't have that. They don't have those resources. They're not being funded by the US to have this training, to have those resources. The only thing that Palestinians can have is what we can call resistance fighters. It would be an army if they could have them, but the global community won't allow them to have it. So we think we need, if we're going to talk about violence, let's talk about actually what happens when you restrict people's legal rights to be able to resist in the language of warfare. It's going to come out in ways that we consider unacceptable. It's going to come out in that. I can say that I want no, nobody to be dying. Anybody's hand here. Unfortunately, it's a little bit too late for any of us to be having that conversation. Another strange and fascinating thing that's around the discourse of violence that has become very clear um, since October 7th has also been this um, partition between acceptable violence and unacceptable violence. And like the amount of political leaders that I've seen you know, make these statements around like the rules of war, mm. the rules of conflict, mm. how one is allowed to engage. And it's like, well, hang on, people. If, 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 if nation states are created in such a way that they actually have rules to go to war because they assume that war will happen mm -hmm. um, and they have that kind of inbuilt violent mechanism, then surely we can assume then that the thing that needs the rules, the nation states, are inherently the most violent perpetrators of uh, violence, the most extreme perpetrators of violence in the world. Yeah. Not people. Quite. And, and there are red tapes often. I, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know that there are red tapes where uh, negotiations are held between states where they say, we can bomb each other's areas in, within these red tapes. We can send missiles, we can pop, 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 right? And those are the red tape. Oh, you, right? That, that exists so that warfare happens as a conversation. You're seeing now between Israel's northern border and Lebanon's southern border that there is a ping pong. They're just shooting at each other's targets. Now, these are targets that are unfortunately affecting some civilians, but they are even more unfortunately agreed upon by the states and by the parties that they can fire within those regions because that's how we say i'm poking you i'm prodding you hey i saw what you did there hey i received your message through that missile but i'm just going to send you one back that's what they do right there's those areas of red tape now you cannot say that the whole of gaza is within a red tape you know it is absolutely not and we can say the exact same for what happened on october 7th what I would like to put as a, as, a, as a question in people's minds is this image. In the 1920s, uh, there was a horrific a period within which the town that is now Izmir in, uh, in Turkey had a lot of migrants and refugees, Armenians, Greeks, 
And there was a horrific incident within which the Turkish soldiers wanted to raise to the ground the villages and its people so they could rebuild on top of it. Yeah. So what it did to kill off all those people, to kill off all that infrastructure so they could reclaim it and get rid of all the refugees and the migrants, set fire to the whole thing. Yeah. To trap people in this, in this burning enclosed space. And what's most famous about that incident is that whilst it was burning, there were both big ships off the shore where the soldiers went and partied and drank, played music, had sex, while the burning villages and screams were happening in the background. Okay? Now, we can, we can say, because this is historical, oh, and, and by the way, we know this because it was the very start of photojournalism. So there are images. There's a lot of, of reporting mm. that happened, which is why it was such a famous event, infamous event. Now, we can say, because this is historical and we have some distance, 100 years, that that is so, so horrific. And the moral, uh, 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 the lack of morality in that is, is almost incomprehensible. So I ask those people who, who can agree with me on that, how it then looks when you have what is an open-air prison and what was originally a call, called a active concentration camp. It was originally called that Gaza by an Israeli writer, an Israeli academic, who was the first person to call Gaza a concentration camp. So let's call it that for the sake of this argument. You have a concentration camp. Why was it appropriate to be to, to hold a music festival outside a concentration camp? This I cannot fathom. Because of the amount of dehumanization, I would imagine, in the same way that we live in countries where, well, I, I, I don't know where they are, but I imagine there's slaughterhouses actually not too far, mm -hmm. right, from where I am, Animal Ag, and because, well, I mean, I'm not, well, yeah, I am going to make that comparison, right? Slaughter, slaughterhouse that's deemed as like non non-living not for food non non-animal really just product not the kind not the kinds of animals that i engage with that are you know bloody labradors and whatever's <laughs> you know it's that it's that difference right between animal and non-animal and i mean obviously you c must not generalize because there's so much israeli resistance as well within the state i must not generalize but from what i've seen some things that i have seen the amount of dehumanization that goes on that those the, the the population are infected with i mean why how could there be a music fest? how could teenagers be dancing next to such such suffering and violence well because it, it's it's not happening to humans quite exactly exactly and we go back to this use uh, of many people have been talking about and been horrified by, but not enough people, the use of these are human animals. And, and, and we oh, heard this God. before with the persecution of Jews. How are we not learning? Jews were called rats, and that's why so many people allowed for the Holocaust to happen. Oh, but it's not happening to humans. I can allow it to happen to rats. I don't like rats. We allowed this to happen before. How are we back here? You know, this is how it always comes down to this is not about religion and never was. Like, God yeah. bless all of the, of the great 
voices that are coming forward from the Jewish movements who are, who are saying, this is not the values of Judaism. This is a colonial value. This is entirely colonial values. This is being propped up by military regimes who do not care about religion. They don't. They just don't care. They just needed a foothold in the Middle East and they needed an economic, an, let's say, an economic and military foothold in the Middle East because it emerged just after the Ottoman Empire. They'd managed to collapse the empire and the only way to stop such a powerful empire from emerging again in the Middle East was to disrupt it by creating the state of Israel, by allowing the Zionist project to take a land that wasn't the British people, the British government land to years. You know, we, I yes. mean, Biden saying this time and time again, if there wasn't such a thing as Israel, we'd have to invent it. We, we keep mm -hmm. seeing that. He said it's the best mm -hmm. investment America can make. Because it continues mm -hmm. to protect her interests protect. in the Middle East. What yeah. are your interests, Biden? Quite. What have they been for the past 15 years that you've been uh, destabilizing that part of the world? Quite. Could it be resources? Absolutely. Is this another colonial project? I mean, it's so, it's, it's so, and I think, you know, I think something else, just like the, the, the cognitive dissonance of like when people are like, oh, it's, but it's, a, it's the land for a, for a Jewish uh, people. Well, you know, people, Jewish people started to go and like from, now I'm not an expert by any means, but from what I understand, late 1800s, there were, I mean, first of all, there were already Jews and Arabs and Christians living there in that always. region for a very, very long time. Always. Always. And then some more sort of an influx of Jews and then um, came under, uh, Palestine came under, you know, well, Britain colonized and like took over. Um, and there was like some more sort of immigration of, of European Jews into uh, Palestine. But I read this thing that, Fascinatingly, um, so the Jewish people became more populated and started um, having a go at the British Empire there. And so they stopped, they capped the immigration of Jews into, yes. you know, the land. Yeah. And even during the Holocaust, yeah. even during the Holocaust, mm -hmm. so Jews who were under persecution in Europe were not allowed to go to Israel because mm -hmm. the British Empire was bloody worried about having too many of them and that toppling their rule. So don't ever tell me that this was for the land for the Jewish people out of guilt. Absolutely. That was obviously not Absolutely. what it was for. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, so first of all, exactly like you said, you know, in, in Lebanon, you... We still have synagogues that have now been disused because of the tension that's been created. We, we never created that. There has always been many different religions living side by side since forever in the Middle East. You know, and you can see a graph of, okay, when was it the most populated by whom? Okay. And, and it's largely been the most populated um, by uh, uh, the Abrahamic religions. Uh, and, and largely by the Muslim population uh, so the, to the longest amount of time. Also by Christians, there were small periods when it was more populated by Christians, very small periods when it was more populated uh, uh, by Jewish folk. Now, they were always, we were always living side by side. That was happening. I'm not saying that everything was always bloody harmonious and peaceful, but it's not in, in England, neither. It's not in America either, but it certainly wasn't a war uh, against religions. And... Uh, secondly, what I'll say is the, at the very start of the Zionist project, which, as you say, was well before the First, the first World War, 
there was the original foundation of Zionism by Theodor Herzl. Now, Theodor Herzl wasn't uh, initially particularly interested, as I understand it, in Palestine. He, he, he just wanted a land, a theocratic land, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't about Palestine. They were looking at Uganda. That's where they were going to set it up, you know. They were looking at various other, other countries. So to say that there is a, 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 a right, as is used in the, in the right to return, to, to Palestine is completely shot through if you just look at the history of Zionism. It, 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 it was going to be a right to return anywhere. It was going to be a right to return anywhere, you know. You can't just say, even, you know, I'm a Syrian person. My, 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 my father was uh, uh, from Syria, but I wasn't born there. So I don't go around saying I am indigenous to Syria, you know. Actually, uh, no. <laughs> which is what so many Jewish activists are saying now. How come, what do you mean to say that, that all, all Jewish folk are, are indigenous to, to Palestine when how many uh, 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 generations have been living in Brooklyn? You know, hmm. uh, it's, it's absurd. But I, I don't want to go too far into that because we may have already even gone too far um, because this, this provocation of this being about religion is what is flattening out the unity against colonialism. And, and it's yes. just not fair to anybody. And it's particularly not fair to so much of the Jewish, so many of the Jewish communities. It is so not fair to try and conflate Judaism with white supremacy and colonialism. It is not fair. And people who do that are, are, are not doing it in the best interest of, of, of whom they claim to be doing it for. They're really, really not. Of course not. I mean, even since October 7th, the people that you have seen um, calling for, I mean, barring your activists, the next most reasonable uh, group of people have been your religious leaders calling for a ceasefire yes. together. Imams yeah. and God, you know, what? I don't even know. What do they call the Christian ones? Priests? Vicars? I don't know. Them. <laughs> <laughs> and your Jewish community coming together and doing press conferences together, calling yes. for the, for the to stop to the violence, calling for peace. Call like you cannot tell me that the most religious people in the world are the ones that um are like behind and like perpetrating this. Quite frankly, like I just I just won't believe it. It's so obvious. It's so obviously geopolitical. It drives I I cannot what? fathom how people think it's not. And and and. Going down that track, it, it becomes very clear that anybody who calls this a religious war is very anti-religion. I'm not anti-religion. I'm not. I, 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 I don't believe that, that religion, and this is a very nuanced conversation, um, but there are people who take their religious scriptures in order to implement their own uh, interests and values. It isn't uh, foundationally uh, the problem of religion, uh, the way that human nature takes it on and, and, and creates problems from it. But to, to say that this is a religious warfare is, is to be in incredibly undermining of, a, you know, thousands of years of Jewish faith and thousands of years of Islamic faith and the Christians. The Christians create a completely existential crisis for people who partake in this particular rhetoric. There are many Christians living in Palestine as well. Uh, but people don't want to focus on that because it's an ex existential crisis if they start bringing that into the conversation. It really doesn't work with their binary. 
but it is to completely undermine the communities and the love and 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 and, and the, the scriptures that have been foundational to so much uh, 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 commitment and devotion that people have had, you know? And people who say that they say, oh, you know, this religious warfare, it's all about religion. They bring anti-Semitism into it and what have you, blah, blah, blah. It's people who are at their core so affected by Western media bias that they too believe that there is just fundamentally a problem with religion and don't understand that all warfare has consistently come from economic gain, has come through economic gain and land grabbing. That's it. Of course. Which is all we've seen for years, you yeah, know. Of course. And also the, the language around war as well, you know, we, we must remember that what we call an anti-colonial uh, uh, people, as people who are, who are anti-colonial, let's say, because I don't want to just say activists, because that sounds very uh, uh, strong. And there are folk who believe in decolonization everywhere. They don't have to be uh, uh, um, as vocal necessarily as you and I are about that, right? Now, if you are in the decolonial uh, sphere and understand decolonialism, then you would refer to the Algerian uh, revolution where they overthrew the British colonialism as the Algerian revolution. The French still to this day call it the Algerian war. Yeah. And I think that this is a very important when we, we start mm. bringing in the word war. I'm sick of seeing the word Israel-Gaza war, Israel-Palestine war. War who? <laughs> war who? Mm. Is, when is that disproportionate? There is no war. You have to call it a, a, a revolution, a resistance. A large-scale resistance has happened and it has infected the whole world over. People are uprising across the globe uh, in, in, in belief of the liberation of Palestine. And that isn't slowing down. That is absolutely not slowing down. It's called this the big wake up. It's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, terrible yeah. that it has to come through something so violent. But maybe it would only be something so violent that would make it so obvious to so many people the reality of nation statehood and economy and white supremacy and all of this kind of stuff. But to see the images of people, whether it's, you know, Lebanese or Hezbollah, you know, because I saw this, oh, Hezbollah's gathering, whatever, like people are gathering, essentially, you know, in Iran, in Iraq, in Egypt, in Morocco, like all over the Arab world, and then all over the Western world as well. Absolutely. Even in, I even saw a march in Texas, footage, mm. a huge march in bloody Texas of all places. You know, there's something just, it's so obvious how to be on the right side of history here. And it's so obvious that our leaders are not and that therefore they are not leaders and therefore they have a very different agenda that it is, it's doing something and it's unifying because my God, they have tried so hard to split us down with culture wars, right? Which is kind of the, the, the term that's been slung around for like the past decade, which is essentially just like the little brother of religious wars, right? As a, as a terminology. Um, and they've done that. It's been such an excess, successful divide and conquer technique um, that it even oftentimes made the left eat, left eat itself. But there's something so beautiful about this as well, because what we see is like people coming out for one another, not just for their own group, but for one another. I think one of the, the most, that's, that's very hard to gauge, actually. I was going to say one of the most moving things I've seen, but uh, I think that is incredibly hard to gauge in this current time. Let's say 
one thing I felt quite excited about was seeing the formation in London of the, what they're calling the joint struggle block. So it's Black Lives Matter, SDS No Borders, uh, LGSM, uh, uh, London, uh, London and Gays, Gays Support the Migrants, uh, London and Gays, sorry. Lesbian and Gays <laughs> Support the Migrants. They've called me London. Um, lesbian and Gays Support the Migrants. And, 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 and a number of other grassroots resistance groups who came together and they're ensuring that they march together as a block, joint struggle block, it's called. I haven't seen, and perhaps it's just me, but I do believe I've been speaking quite extensively with other anti-racist activists and saying, I haven't seen prior to this, the emergence of coalition across movement happening in the UK for quite some time. Now, when you start to see coalitions, you really start to see hope. I hate the word hope. I think it's really empty. I don't think it means anything. I prefer the word faith because it's more rooted in reality. Faith is something you practice in your body. Faith is engaging in a free Palestine every single damn day. You know, hope is just, I hope that they, uh, I hope they're all right. <laughs> you know, so I don't really like the word. It's you get a bit more in the past, maybe just 24 hours. Um, so, uh, yeah, the joint, the joint struggle, the joint struggle block uh, has been a, a coalition that has emerged. And it's exactly like you're saying. And what people are doing, what you're seeing mostly across the Arab uh, region as well, and including in Lebanon, is protesters are protesting the U.S. embassies. Mm. Yes, the Israeli embassies, but many of the countries don't have an Israeli embassy because they never did normalization. Uh, with, with Israel and, and you know, I, I condemn those that did. Um, but what they're doing is they're, is they're turning up to protest at their American embassies. And to me, that is so, so emblematic of people turning up to overthrow colonialism. They know exactly what the source is. Yeah. Yeah. To add to that as well, that night when, um, when the hospital was bombed, and we saw those images of this huge influxes of people all around the, the Arab world to the center of their cities. Another embassy um, outside of which they were protesting was the French embassy. Correct. There was, I can't remember where, in which city it was, but it was that exact same thing of like, yes, you know, we know, we know, we know the history, we know the problem, we know what it, what it represents and where its heart lies. Yes. Yes, people, I people it was beautiful. completely, completely agree. And I think as so many decolonial voices have, have said since 7th of October, oh, people are starting to finally realize that decolonial, decolonialism isn't a theory, but it's a practice. And that means that it gets ugly sometimes. Historically, decolonialism has never happened without large-scale resistance. And, and without sacrifice. So people are finally seeing this. I think what you've been getting at in this conversation is the exact same the other way around. People are realizing colonialism isn't a concept, that it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a material experience. And so people are waking up to that and seeing from that perspective, hang on, let me just trace the roots here. I'm not just focused on the people who are resisting. I can also flip this 
and see that actually colonialism is also a felt experience, right? Not just decolonialism. It's not just about the resistance fighters. Hang on a minute. Let me just turn that around. Ah, now I see the root. Now I see where this traces back to, which is why you're seeing so much large, large scale uh, uh, resistance in Europe, in the UK, in the US. How long did uh, did JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, occupy Congress? I didn't see when it ended, but I was watching it for every for for a number of days while they were there. And then I think it's when I was traveling. I'm not sure if if they're still there or or, or exactly what uh, the 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 end to that was. But I'm sure it is not the end. They're they're an incredible group, and, and and people are going to the source and saying no, no, no. And 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 this is something I I, I as a British citizen. That I believe very strongly, which is that we have a responsibility because th- there is so much blood on the hands of our political leaders. And I say our with, uh, with speech. Uh, yeah. uh, there's so much blood on their hands that it, it is crusting under their fingernails. And it is our responsibility as citizens to challenge that and to dissent from that citizenship. And why do I mean dissent from citizenship? Because your citizenship is a social contract between you and your government. That's what it is. It's a social contract. It can be broken from both sides. It is broken by uh, these governments of our countries when they commit atrocities in our name and with our money. That social contract becomes broken. We didn't agree to that. So simultaneously, I can turn around to them and say, well, I too can break that social contract and I can dissent from citizenship and I can also decide that I'm no longer going to listen to your laws. If you won't listen to to my laws of morality, why should I listen to your legislation, actually? Yes. There's something so important in that. I love, and I love this image that you're using of like turning Turn, turning the lens um, because and I just I love how this I wasn't expecting this conversation to do all of this uh, with regard but because it's all also about the climate movement as well like because that's another liberation movement from this economic paradigm and colonial powers and all this as well and something that I've been sort of banging on about for the past few months on this show and in conversation with anybody who will listen has been protest like I on the street protesting asking asking demanding even but asking not enough mm-hmm. uh coming out with the solutions not enough like you need to turn the action to focus on the problem as and as well we need to start uprooting yeah that thing that is causing all of that violence otherwise it won't work none of the th- otherwise the best that we're hoping for is essentially collapse and have the nets ready you know some nets ready to catch people but it is not, and I said, you know, I even said this to venture capitalists recently, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, for some reason, they wanted to speak to me. And some of them were like, what, what, inv- what should I be in? Like, what should I be like investing in? I was like, you should be investing in activist networks. <laughs> because those are the people that are pushing the reality that makes the legislation necessary that's going to make you bucket loads of money from investing in bloody solar panels or whatever it is like it's part of a diverse investment strategy like you have to you have to get the people you have to support the people who are doing the work to undo the actual structures of power yes but certainly within the climate movement there has to be so much more actual undoing and I think that 
Uh, I mean, you've seen that. I, I know you'll have seen that. Those images of um, during the, the March of Return yeah. in Palestine over that year yeah. and a half when they marched and marched and two, peacefully towards the border wall and 200 odd were shot dead by the Israeli force. It was a peaceful march. Everybody, men, women, children. Yeah. And it didn't work because power, as we have seen, has no interest no interest in giving back, no interest in giving up. And previ- in that last century, when things looked like they were going a little bit better, you know, progressive civil rights, you know, oh, good, well, good for women, oh, good for uh, people of color, oh, good for, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ community. Actually, what was happening was they were exporting all of that terror elsewhere to other communities. Well, they realized they didn't need to extract from their own populations. They could go and extract elsewhere thanks to globalization and thanks to capitalism. And now it's coming home. Yes. Now it's coming home. There is no 20th century in which it's possible to march and be heard. That was also through a very specific material condition of other people being exploited and extracted from. Yes. Like, yes. You have to focus on undoing power. Absolutely. And, and, and there's, there's, it's all going to get like so many things I wouldn't, I, I want to share back with you because you're, you're completely right. And first of all, we, the climate change being rooted. Uh, once again, and the class struggle being rooted in the Palestinian Liberation Front can be uh, emphasized by the Israeli state's insistence on tearing up the olive groves and the land, mm-hmm. the farmland. You know, so uh, many Palestinian families, uh, in fact, you could say all, you know, originally come from, that's a massive generalization. Let me not say that. Let me say, Palestinian culture is rooted in agriculture. So much of it is rooted in agriculture. You see the kafir, the, the, the scarf that people wear. Within that, part of the pattern on that references the olive groves. And then what you see mm-hmm. is uh, the Israeli state setting fire to those olive, olive groves and tearing them up. because not, not just because they want to build buildings on them, but also because... They want to remove any sign of ancestry to the Palestinian people. Mm. Those olive groves are an existential crisis because they they uh, 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 grow for hundreds of years. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing that has always been, at least from 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 my reading and and, and studying and engagement uh, throughout the course of my life, one thing that I have seen is that revolutionary. Statements, founding papers, and, and writers and voices um, from Palestine always go back to the land. They always talk about the reclamation of their land, having resistance until victory while our feet are rooted on the ground of our land. And while we can still grow our own food, it is a localized economy and it has, it has remained so. You know, I think that that is something incredibly important when you look at the 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 palestine both these occupied territories 48 and historically what you see is a lot of agricultural space and a lot of farmland right it's a class struggle it's an environmental struggle as well as it being or because of it being a colonial uh, uh, struggle as well and in terms of how we deal with these crises and marching and, and, and asking the powers that be uh, 
to to amend their legislation, to amend uh, the way in which they're treating the global south. Beyo Okumalafi. Beyo Okumalafi. I love this guy. He talked mm. about how the way you deal with the crisis is largely the crisis itself. Right? And it comes back to these guys who are telling you about the, the, these investment uh, bankers uh, or whomever. Or, uh, um, guys, actually, uh, maybe continuing to think in terms of investment isn't necessarily the way forward. Yeah, I don't want to hear invest. I don't want to hear growth. I want to hear divest mm-hmm. and I want to hear localize. Mm-hmm. Tell us, church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> shush. Mm-hmm. You know, just sit down. That's what we need you to do. We need you to sit down and shush. It's just all I need you to do. Yeah. Just, just. <laughs> you want to solve it with the same mentality that you created the problem. Yeah. With, you know. So yeah. then, what? What also Okumalafi talks about is the trick to energy. Right. This is his famous uh, 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 offering. This idea of the trick to energy, and we're seeing that. When we see, for example, did you watch Bassem Youssef uh, talking to Piers Morgan? Yes, I did. Like, I watched it about five uh, times. <laughs> but why this was most effective is because he kept flipping the script. His, tri- his trickster energy was so effective in saying, I agree with you. I agree with you. You're right, Ben Shapiro, smartest man in the world. And so I asked him, what is the currency? You know, of life. And he and he 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 brings this trickster energy that makes it impossible to disagree uh, with his argument. Mm. He's he's leaving no no space for disagreement. And it's through that trickster trickster energy. And finally, in terms of not asking, when have we ever seen change that we asked for? Look at okay, let's take this out of let's take let's take this out of Palestine. Let's look at uh, the LGBTQIA uh, 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 liberation movements. You think that happened magically? No, a brick was thrown. Stonewall was a riot. Tell me again that we mm-hmm. don't need violence. I beg you, tell me again we don't need violence. You know, this is not me calling uh, for violence before I get a knock at my door, but probably I'll get my, the knock at my door anyway. I, whatever, the knock at my door is, is coming. You know, there's, there's no way of us avoiding at times like this looking back historically and saying, but what worked? What stopped violence? And sometimes it was a new punctuation mark of violence. It was a brick through a damn window that started the Stonewall riots that changed things historically for LGBTQIA people. So I now can live my life in England. And not that that's violence-free as a, as a, as a queer person, you know? It's a hell of a lot closer to it because a punctuation mark was created to a brick and a window. That is so beautiful, Lux. A punctuation mark of a of a brick through a window that allow that that punctuates the regime, right? That's what that kind of act of sabotage does. And it's not And this is the other thing that I think about quite a lot is like uh, people are so quick to decry that kind of sabotage or 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 any kind of violence. It's like god, we're so lucky that there's not more between like the, the oppressed in the world is the majority. We can all agree on that, right? The majority peoples in the world are oppressed. It is amazing that there is not much more 
resistance. And frankly, if there were, how do I put this? If people were inherently violent, if they were inherently violent, this wouldn't exist in the way that it does. It's because people are not inherently violent because they don't want to have to be violent because they are kind and compassionate and they think about the long term and they think about the consequences of their actions that the oppressed haven't just like burned the whole place down. You know, because people are living in community. They are embodied in their suffering together. And I think that is a massive problem in sort of your more quote-unquote developed economies. Mm. We've been so atomized and individualized and our trauma has become so invisible we all like suffer it individually because of the way that life is set up, that actually it makes that fracturing of like a communal response more difficult. And I think probably I'm totally riffing here. I've never thought about it until this exact moment. But that might also explain these kind of like violent outbursts from certain groups like in the United States. Like, why is it that mass shootings are on the up? Yeah. Why is it? Well, the, because people are not well. And why are they choosing that? Well, they're not embodied in community. There's like, I'm not saying there's nothing else for them to do. Of course not. I'm not condoning that in any way. But it is something that they can do. Yeah, I mean, in terms, in terms of mass shooting, just, just to respond to that, it reminds me of what Basson Yusuf said on the Piers Morgan show, which was when Piers Morgan, which is a hilarious question, the irony just is beyond itself sometimes. He said, what would you do if you were Israel? Bethlehem is like, if I was Israel, okay, let's play this game. If I was Israel, okay, this is such a weird question. What would you do if you were the Israeli state? Anyway, Bethlehem Yusuf says, I would do exactly what I've done because the world is letting me, because I can, mm. right? And, it, and it's that. If it, it, anyway, don't want to spend too long on, on, on that notion, but in, in terms of this, we went very close to this idea of folk who, believe there is a way to bypass in climate change movements, in anti-colonial movements, in trans liberation, queer liberation, that we can bypass these big moments of resistance that include modalities of seeming violence, right? Such as a brick through the window. And there are these same people who I'm seeing post since October 7th, ah, Let's imagine peace. My friend, we've been imagining it. We've been planning it. Mm. We've been reading books. We've been having discussions. We've been organizing around it. But peace doesn't come from sitting and, 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 and chanting together. Peace has to come first through the yin-yang, through a moment of darkness, right? This is one of the rhetorics that is bothering me the most. You can't just uh, imagine peace. And then also it's those same people who are not imagining peace. You're not doing anything to imagine peace. You're using a phrase mm -hmm. that's very easy to use. And if you imagine peace, if you truly want peace, then you have to plan for it. You have to organize. You have to bring together communities. You have to have hard discussions. You have to consider notions of where, where the line is, what is too much, what is not enough. You know, you have to collectively organize mutual aid. You have to do stuff. It is an embodied knowledge, you know. I have had one person, I don't even want to give them airtime, but one of the most insidious people who've been in my comments since October the 7th, insidious, who is putting hate speech in everybody's mouth. These is somebody who is challenging the notion of free Palestine, right? And anytime somebody comes forward and says, Listen, I can share resources with you if you like. Let me know if, if you don't mind me DMing you because I've got some links that you might find useful if you're trying to understand like 
this side of things where we're coming from. And this person just keeps putting words in their mouth, like saying, I don't understand why you're calling for the death of all Jews. Yeah, my love, nobody's, no, not a single person in these comments. What you're doing is sick, is a sick type of violence. None of us would ever even imagine such a thing. Are you insane? We are people who don't want to hurt anybody. That is why we're fighting for free Palestine, because we want violence to stop. And let me tell you something, Rachel. I looked on this person's page, and guess what? They're a healer. They're a healer. Oh. They're posting all about peace. And, 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 and. Oh. <laughs> you can't write it. Oh, I'm I'm having uh, I'm having a bodily reaction. Yep. Oh God! There's something. Do you know what? Do you know what? I can't believe we're going here, but let's bloody go here. You're gonna love this. You're gonna hate this. I hated this. I was in some thing online thing uh, last week. Um, last last week. Yes, like last Monday or Tuesday. So you know, a week and a half, two weeks in to terrible violence. And, you know, a lot of talk around apartheid and colonialism and all this kind of stuff. And and a white South African woman said that, oh, oh <laughs> you know what's going on here. She said that South Africa had um, gotten past apartheid, apartheid and like, you know, done well by it, 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 that it, the, that it, love and light. That's how South Africa did it. Oh my goodness, love and light. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course they did. Of course they did. What? Well, it's the delusion. It's it's a it's a it's a real real felt delusion. And I saw somebody, and I wish I could I could credit them, but there's such a, a barrage uh, of things that I'm taking in at the moment. And I think this was something that I saw in passing, unfortunately. If I Remember the credit or I look it up after I let you know so that we can make sure we credit them in Please. any kind of description. But they were essentially saying there are people who are so ignorant to, to racism at large uh, and, and that being within anti-colonial, uh, sorry, in colonial movements, within climate injustice, in all these different modalities, within apartheid. They are completely oblivious to it and they don't realize that racism is a white problem because as Toni Morrison said, you know, if you can only feel big when you put someone else on their knees, then you have a big problem and you need to figure out what you're going to do about your problem, you know? And so Toni Morrison said that. Now this, this, this uh, uh, note that I saw from somebody more recently was, I don't wish I was them. I don't wish I was that ignorant. I would rather be struggling with the agony of what we're feeling right now, because at least I know that I feel, at least I know that I understand humanity, at least I know that I have morals, at least I know that I have love. Mm -hmm. Real love, not the love yeah. and light that is printed on t-shirts and no, signs. Revolutionary and... love. Nah. Revolutionary, revolutionary, love. Love, revolutionary love or nothing. That's... You know, if, if your love isn't, isn't, isn't truly actively, actively resisting harm and hate, if it isn't active, then it, it, it's, it's not love, it's, it's, a, it's a slogan. 
you know. I've been very frustrated at the use of abstract nouns, actually, generally speaking, since October the 7th, you know, like peace, love, you know, like all, all, all of these abstract nouns that people use, that they evoke to say absolutely nothing at all, you know, and, and, and in, um, in kind of, Postmodern linguistic, you'd refer to it as the empty symbol, these empty symbols, right? These words or, or, or images that don't actually denote anything. They don't, they don't denote anything. There's nothing inside the symbol anymore. It's simply become referential of itself. So the word mm -hmm. love in this context, or peace in this context, mm -hmm. is only actually mm -hmm. becoming referential to its own emptiness, to the word itself. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about the word peace right now, I just see it drawn in like these like squiggly, nice little illustrated yes. font, you know, <laughs> or a t-shirt or a meme, you know, or a graphic. It doesn't actually, I can't actively use that word and imagine a, a, a physical felt experience because nobody's trying to use that word to mean something. My, 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 my partner had a tea yesterday and, you know, you get these boxes of like pocket teas. And so there's like the peace tea or the sleepy tea or whatever. And, and she said to me, do you, want, uh, yeah. do you want some of this as a peace tea? I said, uh, why don't we call it the Oslo Accords tea? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, let's try, let's try and challenge these, uh, these abstract nouns, uh, really. It's, uh, and it tasted terrible. Like, it tastes like Oslo Accords as well, you know? Oh, it doesn't taste so good. <laughs> What's it doing for me? But nothing. But so much of language now does exactly that. I mean, the, the COP agreements. What agreement? Absolutely, the word agreement means nothing anymore, thanks to COP. No. Quite frankly, these like, twenty-eight years of this useless neg and negotiating. What you're not negotiating, you're agreeing as well. Like, how do we? How do we make this somebody else's problem? in the future like I think I mean if you have time I would love to I would love to talk a little bit about love before letting you go um sure and and revolutionary love because linguistic the linguistics of all of the oh hang on I've got a whole bunch of things in my mind let me try and start over here and go see if I get over here but like <laughs> so this this idea even resistance and like the right to resist there is another word for this that is more commonly used when it become, comes down to like an in, individual, and that is self-defense, right? And funnily enough, they granted it to Israel. Obviously, funnily enough, of course they did. But when we think about the kind of actions that somebody would take to take care of themselves, the one that I, the metaphor that I, you offered them, you know, the image of being trapped in a cage with the, with the bar cutters. The thing that I sometimes think about is if I imagine a woman and a child in a house um, locked in a house uh, with, a, with a man that is beating them and he has the keys and um, to get out of that house she tries everything right she tries she tries begging she tries pleading she tries offering herself negotiating all of this stuff it doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't work also another part of the house comes on fire really sort of ramping up the urgency of the situation um, and to get it in order to get the keys she realizes the only way the only thing that she can do to save her child and herself is kill that man and get out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know anybody that would begrudge that woman? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, well, well, yes. 
Unfortunately, the media well, the media would write that uh, uh, as as uh, uh, that it was uh, la- largely largely her fault because she possibly rejected him and that's why he was so angry. But absolutely, right? Okay. Those who don't yeah, have she's it. lucky she didn't take a bullet. Yeah, like the, 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 yeah, those those are the sliver of morality. You're absolutely right. And I want to use a similar analogy that is used in court, and it's one that I that I used in my own trial. Um, when I, when, when I was convicted for pro-Palestinian resistance way before any of this happened, because this persecution that we see in pro-Palestinian uh, activists is, is not new. It's ramped up right now, but it's not new. It's just that more people are experiencing it, you know? And, I, and having been on the receiving end of that, there's a uh, image, there's a uh, metaphor that is used in legal speak to explain a defense, okay? So one of the defenses. Let's come back to, to defense, right? And one of those is, do you believe, say, for example, you took action against a building uh, uh, because that building, within that building, uh, there was some horrific crimes happening, such as the breaching of international law through the creating of, of, of arms for a military ra- for a apartheid regime. Let's just say, hypothetically. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you took action against that building, then one avenue of defense in the court of law is whether you believe that whoever owned the building would have consented to you taking the action that you did had they known what was happening in the building. So the metaphor that's used to explain this by many solicitors and barristers and other uh, bodies within the legal system is if you see a house on fire. So let's talk about this from the other side. What you're talking about is, is a person's own autonomous right uh, to, to, to resist in a time of urgency. So let's talk about this in standing shoulder to shoulder. Let's imagine this is transnational activism, what I'm about to say. Let's talk about this as transnational love. Yeah, let's talk about this as transnational allyship. I walk past a building. I see there's a, a, a building on fire and there is somebody in it. The only way for me to get that person out is to smash the window. Hmm? Do I believe that whoever owned the house would have accepted for me to smash the window in order for me to potentially get her child, his child, out of that house? Yes, of mm-hmm. course I would believe that. Yeah. So this is, mm-hmm. this is an argument of defense in the court of law. It's exactly as you say. You can't argue that you would look and be like, thing is, there is a fire and there is a child trapped inside, but I'm sure they wouldn't want me to break that window. <laughs> but you know, private property. Private property. I probably shouldn't break the window. They'd probably be very upset with me if I broke their, if I broke their window, you know. Yeah. No, that's not. Yeah. No, hmm. you, break the, you break the window and you break the down wall and you break the barrier and you break the apartheid as an act of love. And that's why we continue to resist because we don't want to stand outside watching somebody die in the flames of that violence so we have to smash a window or two we have to punctuate punctuate the violence with love there you go yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and on the other the other, sorry i i, I just want to talk about that as well because we've talked an awful lot about the the bold active uh, active resistance so the moments of the paratroopers uh, the, the the moments of the brick going through the window, 
uh, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela's own repertoire of, of sabotage. We've talked about all of that. But what I don't think is talked about enough is the humanization of resistance. So there's uh, Thomas Sankara is a, a, a wonderful example, uh, I believe, of this because Thomas Sankara, uh, the, 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 the first democratic socialist, uh, socialist uh, leader of Burkina Faso, revolutionary. He stood up at the UN summit and he talked about how him and his whole delegation rejected imperialism. And what was emblematic of that is we don't need your cloth being imported. We don't need what it is that you're trying to send us. Every piece of clothing that me and my delegation are wearing is threads uh, made uh, uh, by, by tillers of the, of the land in my country. It is made by the seamstresses uh, in my country. Yeah, this was a moment of dignity for him. This is how he showed dignity. And we don't need you. We make our own clothes. We don't need what you import. Now, when I researched more uh, about the coup uh, uh, in which he was assassinated, and I believe it was in that same uh, speech where he said, I bet before the next summit or the next six months, I'll be assassinated for saying what I'm saying here. Okay, so the coup happens, he's assassinated. There is one surviving uh, member of that assassination one uh, uh, surviving member of his, of his party who gave an interview some time ago, but you can dig it out and find it on YouTube. And he talked about how there was a meeting being held at 4 p.m. And when Sankara arrived and they all began the meeting, they'd barely begun uh, uh, discussing what needed to be discussed when they heard gunshots outside and the, and the uh, demands uh, get out, uh, uh, come out now, come out now. And what Sankara did was he stood up, he adjusted his clothes, and then he walked to the door to his, into his assassination. He knew, he knew what was happening. And I am less interested in the gunfire than I am in the straightening of the clothes and the dignity. Mm. And I think we overlook too often that in these old act of warfare, of violence, the interwoven into all of them is someone straightening their clothes and trying to move forward with dignity. Because that is ultimately the resistance of anti-colonialism, a life, a life of dignity, a life that is allowed dignity, a life that takes dignity, that is fundamentally anti-colonial. Wonderfully so called. those very human moments. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, that is really? absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And so I suppose a thing to ask everyone listening to this would be, what can you do in your own life that dignifies your life or dignifies the lives of the people around you or that dignifies the lives of people very far away? Quite. How can you help create a dignified world? Quite. Yeah, wonderful. Are you actually asking me or are you asking the people? I mean, I asked the people, but if you've got an answer. I think I answered the last I think the last hour hour and a half has been an answer. (laughs) Um, But I think it's a very good question to ask ask people in terms of activating their allyship, you know. But let's let's talk about, consistently about the end goal, the end goal being freedom and liberation. And if that is too much of an abstract noun for you, then consider what dignity looks like. 
for people who are being consistently oppressed and humiliated? What will it take for dignity to become what is associated with them rather than these images that completely undignify a people in which people can take on this notion of human animals and run with it and agree with it and believe that there needs to be the complete decimation of a population in order to run out human animals. What's the opposite of that look like? The opposite of that yeah. looks like globally an agreement that there is a dignity in the Palestinian people. And my God, is there, you, you know, you've, you've, you've never seen a people so... I mean, I'm not saying you've never, but the, the, but the will, the samud, the steadfastness to continue resisting and keep living with, 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 with love and with care and with community. Oh, they show us, they show us how to be, you know, we're simply in formation with them and we're honored. We, it's an honor to be in, in, in formation with Palestinian resistance, truly. I've seen some amazing stuff. I've seen stuff that is actually even the, the language. In, and I think this so speaks to, um, it, it's a form of humanization as well, right? Um, because I don't know what a human animal is. A human animal does not exist, right? But I've seen clips of people, yes, standing in rubble that used to be their homes and speaking with such dignity, so eloquently that this is where they are, this is where they will stay, you can take nothing else from me. You cannot take my faith in God and Biden, Europe, and like calling it. They know, they know. They're not stupid. They know, they know better than anybody what this, the, 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 the reality of the Zionist regime, what it actually hides, empire behind it. Um, and I find it incredibly moving that language can flow through people in such moments of grief in such a way to humanize them against all odds. Yeah, and, and that strikes me as very relevant with Amy Cesar's discourse in colonialism, where he famously wrote that the only reason why Europe truly had a problem with the Nazi regime is because the insidious, poisonous violence which they'd been pouring onto countries outside of Europe for so long came home to roost. And the only reason they hated it is because their immorality had, had infected them so much that they had to look it in the eye. And that's why they tried so rigorously to stamp it out and historically find it so hard to talk about because they had to look at a culture that they had created. Mm. Mm -hmm. A very good point, I think, to drop in that... Um... It's a word we've used a couple of times here. And with regards to the Holocaust, it's important concentration camp. It's the British Empire that first uh, created concentration camps. They were colonizing Africa and sort of deployed them as methods. Um, the most violent and ugly states in the world come from, certainly in this period of history, all right? I'm not saying for the entirety of human history, but for the last few millennia, is Western Europe is so devastatingly guilty. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I wanted, something that we emailed that I wanted to ask you about, and we we might not have time, and if we d don't tell me, but talking about decolonialism, 
something that I have seen a lot is that decolonial thinking has become this kind of um, darling of academia over the past, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, and a lot of academics have made pretty good careers out of this new theory. Um, and it's not something that I particularly follow. There's no particular academics that come to mind. But what I have seen is a kind of outpouring of really justified anger and disappointment and deception from um, activists, actionists, just people, that a lot of these decolonial thinkers have kind of run away um, when the theory has had to become practice and are nowhere to be seen. Um, can you speak to that for us? Yeah, I mean, what we've, what we've been seeing, at least in, in the UK, I mean, for the longest amount of time, is academic institutions driving out Palestinian thinkers as well. Palestinian PhDs, Palestinian uh, professors, and making it a hostile environment uh, for Palestinian candidates within the institution, let's say. Now, how people have managed to allow that to happen while writing their papers and benefiting from the concept of decolonialism is first and foremost completely beyond. Now, secondary to that is we very rarely use in contemporary times the phrase or credit of public intellectual because largely speaking, public intellectual meant somebody who was active in political spheres, active in social justice, active in movements, who was also an academic and scholar. There seems to have been this complete disruption or dislocation between those who think and those who act. It's very, it's very uh, useful as well for, uh, uh, for governments and for regimes uh, and for police structures to see those who are reactive, those who resist, and those who are insurgent as disconnected with, with well-thought through intellectual movements. And it, which somehow, mm. I, I say we, uh, using that in the, in the wider context of the royal we, have allowed that to, to happen and allowed the institutional thinkers to stay in the institutional space and the revolutionaries to be somewhat dislocated from that. When you see uprisings in a number of, uh, of countries, we, I mean, in Palestine, we shouldn't look at this directly in Palestine, who are often the first to be exiled? The thinkers, the intellectuals, the writers, and the academics are driven out because if you don't have them being part of the social movement, then it's much easier to look at those who are resisting as simply, well, they're simply working class idiots who are just trying to riot, who are just rioting. The working class individuals who are, who are rioting. Um, you know, look at, for example, the London riots uh, that happened in 2011, how that was essentially uh, uh, deemed as a working class people setting fire to things. Now, that was completely disconnected from an academic rhetoric. Remember that. We remember that. Because England and its psychological warfare is so very good at doing what it wants to do, which is separating units of people and collectives of people and populations. 
the academics have nothing to do with the people who are breaking through a window uh, and stealing trainers uh, en masse. But these are different groups of people. What you see in decolonial movements that are effective is that these people are sat in the same room. You know, there is no difference uh, 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 between those people. There's no hierarchy between those people. It is one unified movement. So, of course, there is a frustration uh, at academics who have been benefiting in their career from speaking on decolonialism. There's a frustration at that if you've ever been within the academic institution way before we even start to see the praxis at large happening in front of us on the global stage. There's frustration at that. Personally, I expected nothing more from them. And, that's, and I don't blame the individual. I drain the psychological warfare that has separated us so that it is so hard for us to overcome that in order to create sustainable social movements. That is a very British thing. Thank you so much for that context. Yeah. I had no idea. And what, what is the act of revolutionary love that heals those relationships in this time, considering the damage and the trauma of so much psychological warfare? Yeah, I... I believe that localization is is such an intriguing in these contemporary times act of revolutionary love because when you look at localization you generally speaking sit the baker the butcher the tech guru <laughs> maybe i don't know any of them but uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the the let's say the person who works in corporations the office worker uh, the academic, uh, yeah, all uh, in one room, and they speak, and they 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 speak in a way that doesn't that breaks them out of their selves. So it wouldn't just be me speaking with other revolutionaries, with other activists, with other writers, with other thinkers, uh, and what have you. It would be me speaking with the young man who runs a corner shop and it was being able to overcome difference for the sake of forming a community that isn't based on simply on mutual social value. It's based on a collectivity for a localized interest or a localized sustainability. You know, you, you see it, uh, you see it when local community, you see it, you see, yeah, no, you know what? You don't, you don't see it in a way in England that transcends class. That's what you never see. You, you never see that. You see it happening amongst working classes when they have to resist such things as housing evictions. And so people will come together that perhaps have much differences, but they come together to unify in order to push against uh, 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 the, the, the um, bourgeoisie, let's say. But otherwise, you don't see that. And I think a localization is, is incredibly, incredibly uh, important. I hope that answers that. Yeah, but I think it's something that we must ask ourselves every single day. The answers that I get through through this show, so many people like the it's the same it's the same roots embodiment community localization 
even from a climate perspective, um, love, radical love, um, yeah. anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, action. Like it's all just to bring us right, right into the beginning of like the free Palestine movement being the front line of the universal struggle mm -hmm. against colonial mm -hmm. power. The answers, some of the answers might be a bit abstract now in their nature. Um, and some of them might demand a huge amount of imagination to 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 endeavor and to create. But the whole point of that is that they're collaborative processes, they're co-creative processes. And there should not be a top-down dictate of what that looks like in each locale. Because my God, if there is one thing that makes us strong as people is our diversity, our diversity in our thinking mm -hmm. and our possibility and our organizing, like that is what makes any ecosystem resilient. And so as long as it is coming from that place of values, which actually we universally share, it's been studied. That's not just a thing. You know, we all, we share kindness and community and love and um, the desire to look after one another. Yeah, and, 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 ex and exactly that in terms of co collectivity, collaboration, you said, collaboration. And, and, and that reminds me of, to loosely paraphrase, it's, it's pretty much this. One of the slogans of the Black Panther Party, which is your body doesn't belong to, to you, it belongs to the movement. And it's that mm. idea of creating an organism. You know, I remember I said this when I, when I stood trial. I said, you can convict me. You can, you can do what you want with me. We will never stand pal, Palestinian resistance within the UK. So, you know, do, do your worst. But, it, but it, it makes no odds what you do to me. It makes no odds if you remove, remove me from the equation because this is an organism that will continue to grow and thrive. And that happens through us caring for each other. That happens through us expanding. Organisms grow when, 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 when you feed them, when you bring in new entities, you know, and, and that's how it grows. I think that's an incredibly important part of it, the ab absolving of the self, the absolving of the individual. And what that looks like is sacrifice sometimes. What that looks like is Overcoming the self, overcoming that discrepancy between you and the and, and, and your neighbour or the person who's as far removed from you as possible, and seeing the organism at, at large. Lux, this has been extraordinary as always. Thank you so 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 much for your time. There's a couple of just like housekeeping questions I want. So the global strike, um, should should people still join? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're going to be. Yes. My answer is yes. Never stop striking. Never stop striking. It has historically been incredibly effective. And if you can't strike, such as the migrant workers movement in the US uh, about 40 years ago, then do the slowdown where you become so inefficient to the, to the organization and make sure that they know exactly why you're doing that. Excellent. And where can, what people would, do you want to, platform essentially as people that uh, others should go and follow or read or whatever also you I, we can do this by email afterwards and i can attach it to the show notes Let, let's do that because i don't want to miss somebody uh important um and i already have been putting together lists for people uh to share so i can just i if people keep coming to me to ask such questions or ask for resources so kind of <laughs> i've got them ready so i'll, I'll, I'll forward that uh to you and and, and make sure Excellent. that uh the best to follow are available and and, uh, and they're all Palestinian uh, some of which are speaking from the ground and others which are speaking from embodied knowledge Excellent, thank you very much 
And my final question for you, it's the same as two, I think, God, I think I first interviewed you two and a half years ago or something mad now, uh, but it's who would you like to platform? Mm-hmm. And do you want to do that via email as well? Or do you have somebody in mind? Do that by, by email because I'm, I'm like thinking of about 15 people at once and I don't know which direction to go in. So I'm probably just going to send you them all. <laughs> uh, uh, who I'd like, who I'd like to platform. I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, of course, Muhammad uh, and is, is ideal because he's just become such an articulate voice um, on, on, on Palestinian uh, resistance. Um, but there's also so many other voices within the resistance that perhaps get uh, less platforming than he does um, and, and, and massively support him being, being widely platformed. But there are other voices and I think drawing attention to those uh, might, I'll tell you who you should platform. Actually, now this is what I'm going to go with. Of all of the ones, I think that they all, all of the reasons why I'd say the others would, conflict, would, com- would converge here, which is platforming more from the Palestinian feminist uh, network. Really, really, really recommend that. They're the colonial uh, activist uh, uh, network and they speak on things such as climate as much as they speak on things such as uh, uh, decolonial resistance, they're academics, they're, they're workers. Um, it's, it's, it's a wide collective. They're former political prisoners. Uh, you know, they're writers. They're really, really artists and a very good bunch uh, to be in touch with. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing. It was amazing to speak to you again. Yeah. And you, and you, Rachel. Nice one. Thank you for being in touch again. Really always, always uh, uh, invigorating. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.